Dear God, we come to you today, and these are stressful times for many people, uh, difficult times. Lord, we pray for those who are sick. We pray that you would heal and help. We pray against this uh, disease that has uh, rampaged around the world and caused so many problems and shutdowns. And Lord, we know that you're above that, that you are sovereign. And so we do ask for your intervention and your help. Uh, we do thank you for your many kindnesses to us. We know that every good gift is a gift from you. And so we are grateful, uh, whether it is that we have health or our jobs or family or whatever it might be, we thank you for those good gifts. I just ask your blessing on those who are gathered here today, whether online or in person, and I just pray that your spirit would do his work among us. This is our prayer in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Now, last week we talked about Jesus and we looked at him as our heavenly high priest and we focused on his role in taking care of our sin problem and dealing with that particular uh, issue in our life. Uh, this week we're going to look at Jesus as well, but we're going to look from a different angle. Now, Jesus was very, very popular for most of his ministry. I mean, the crowds turned on him at the very end, but I mean, he was pretty handy to have around. I mean, he could turn water to wine at a wedding if needed, and so that was pretty, you know, pretty endearing to people. He was one that could feed 5,000 people uh, one time or 4,000 with just taking a few fish and bread. Uh, he was just remarkable. He is truly the outstanding person in all of human history. Our calendars reflect his birth. You have before Christ and you have A.D., which is in the year of our Lord. Um, now, uh, secularists have changed those labels, but it's still, that's the dividing line of history. And so, and at this moment, at least a third of humanity on the planet claims to have followed, uh, claims to follow Jesus Christ. And so he is remarkable. He is incredible. He is both fully God and fully man. What I want to look at today is Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, with the primary emphasis on King of kings, although they're very similar titles and convey the same basic message. In the Gospel of Mark, the first eight chapters, it emphasizes that Jesus is king over all. Um, he is called Jesus Christ. You know, as a little kid, you might have thought that that was his last name. It's not his last name. It's a title, and it basically means an anointed royal figure or a king or Messiah, this one that they have been waiting for, the Jewish nation had been waiting for in all of humanity because the first promise about him was back in the garden um, with, with uh, Adam and Eve, and all of humanity has been waiting for this king to come, and Jesus is that king. He is the highest king. He is the long-awaited king. And so when you're looking for kind of the key ideas is he is the highest king. And it is so important that we get this. Um, if you look at the prophet Isaiah, he talks about how everyone, um, that everyone is going to bow the knee and confess that God is Lord. And that is applied to Jesus in the New Testament because Jesus is fully God as well. We see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Wow, okay. That, that's impressive. Um, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we have this idea, this authority of Jesus, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Second coming is what we look forward to as Christians. We look forward to a time when this king returns. He came in a humble and meek way the first time. But the book of Revelation builds to this climax where he's going to return. And he's going to come very differently than he did the first time. The first time he came as a baby. The first time he came in complete humility. But the next time he is coming in the fullness of his authority. And all will acknowledge it. You see, Jesus is fully divine. He is God. And to encounter him, the scripture makes clear, is to encounter God. He is, um, he and the Father are one, Jesus once claimed, which is a remarkable claim for a Jewish rabbi and would be blasphemy for anyone else to say, but for Jesus it was true. He said that to honor him was to honor the Lord. And he said that um, you could only come to God through him, not some other religious leader, not some other way. He grabbed, blatantly grabbed, and practiced divine prerogatives, things such as forgiving people all of their sins. Now, you and I can forgive each other our sins against each other, but we can't just blanket forgive someone all of their sins. But Jesus grabbed that authority. He exercised that authority, and people were shocked. Jesus accepted worship. He answered prayers, and he raised the dead, and he claimed that he would judge everyone at the end of time. Now, a passage that I can't unpack all of it, but I want to just give it to you, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 20, and I'll unpack a little bit of it, is the return of Jesus Christ, that someday he is coming back. Someday we will answer him. Um, I don't know if your mother ever did this. To me, it has a little bit of the connotation um, you know, every once in a while, um, I would get in trouble for something, and my mom would say, you just wait till your father gets home. It has a little bit of that, uh, but it's mostly for Christians. It is this glorious, we look forward to it. It's like some of your military, and imagine that your unit is trapped and under fire, and it's the idea that, that uh, you know, more troops are coming. And sometimes the church can feel like we're trapped and under fire, we're outnumbered or outgunned, and Jesus is coming back. There is going to be uh, a settling of all accounts. Evil will be dealt with. So here's what it says in Revelation 19, verse 11 through 20. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. Uh, White horses were usually ridden by royalty, so that points to the kingship of Jesus, whose writer is called Faithful and True, so points to the character of Jesus. This writer is Jesus. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, so that connotates judgment, uh, light, truth, all of that. And on his head are many crowns, so notice the authority with which he comes. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And I think the idea here is he is fully divine. And while we can learn certain things about God, God has revealed certain attributes and certain details about him. Because he's fully divine, we don't understand everything about him. We don't totally get it. It's like a small child 
talking to rocket scientists and trying to comprehend everything about that person and what they know. It just doesn't make sense. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now, why is his robe dipped in blood? Some theologians believe this is a reference to the cross where he offers his own blood to free us for our, from our sins. I don't think that's the case here. I think it's dipped in blood. When you put it all in context, the idea is the blood of his enemies. The idea that he comes in conquest, he comes in victory. And I think you continue to, to get that as we go through. But either way, you see a victorious king. You see him um, riding and defeating his enemies. He is the word of God. Um, remember that that's what he was referred to in John chapter 1. That he is, uh, the word was God and the word was with God. And so you see that Jesus is that, that divine title again. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Some theologians think that's angels. Most believe, and this is what I think, that this is the people of God riding with him as part of his army. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He can just speak and win the battle. He doesn't have to fight in the traditional sense um, he will rule them with an iron scepter. Uh, that goes back to Psalms 2. Uh, and just, just a tip, if you want to study and understand the book of Revelation, it's very complex, it's very difficult. There are these major views on the book of Revelation. Like I have a commentary I love, and it has the four major viewpoints on the book of Revelation. And I can pull it off the shelf and look at the passage and, and understand it from the preterist view and the futurist view and, and the spiritualist view and understand this book um, and try to get it and get a handle on it from these different theological schools. But the, the bottom line is this. If you want to understand the book of Revelation... I would tell you, spend some time in the Old Testament before you read the book of Revelation because there are countless references and allusions to the Old Testament. We've already run into a couple here, and they pop. When you know the Old Testament well, the book of Revelation, you're like, oh, there's that and there's that. Um, and so that will help you if you really want to get a handle on the book of Revelation. Notice here you have uh, the next verse. He, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is a very different approach than last time Jesus came. This is not the humble approach. This is the mighty approach. I mean, he is treading on the wine press. This is the image of his enemies. You know, if you've ever been in a, a wine press or you've watched them where they stomp the grapes, the images of God's enemies in there and God stomping them. And that's how the blood gets on the robe. I know it's kind of a gruesome image. But notice this. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is higher than any president, any supreme court, any nation, any united nations, he is above everything. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God. Now, earlier in the book of Revelation, we read about the supper of the Lamb, and that's a very warm 
uh, comforting image where the people of God, where we are gathered and we're celebrating and we're part of the family and, and all of us are there. It's like that family meal uh, with, you know, it's like the big Thanksgiving dinner with your family, but, but without any of the uh, tension that might exist in your particular Thanksgiving dinner gathering with a family. But it's, it's that perfect family gathering together. And yet, this is in contrast, this is the great supper of God, this is him inviting the birds and saying, look, there's going to be a massacre of the enemies of God, all who are evil will be destroyed, and you're going to feast today because there's this massacre. It's a pretty gruesome image, but it is an image of conquest and an image of victory. Come gather for the great supper of God. This is, he says to the birds. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. I'm not going to dive into a lot of detail here and try to unpack all this for you. Suffice it to say, for our purposes this morning, these are enemies of God. Um, ungodly governments, ungodly religion, false religion. These are enemies of God. And you see them combined together here. But notice what happens to these powerful enemies. But the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet. So you kind of have false, you know, or ungodly, wicked government coupled with wicked religion. Um, and because you notice here, you have the false prophet who performed the signs on his behalf. This is something you need to keep in mind as far as discernment. If we are in the very final days, you need to understand that Satan, who is a fallen angel, can do miracles to a certain extent. We see this in the Old Testament. We see the uh, magicians when um, Moses comes and he does miracles, these plagues, that the first couple plagues, the magicians were able to do, I think, false miracles. And finally, I believe it was the plague of the gnats. And those magicians said, wait a minute, we can't do that. That is the hand of God, the finger of God. And so you have to be discerning. Just because somebody does something that even looks like a miracle does not necessarily mean they are from God. You always have to test everything with the word of God. Okay, so this is the false prophet who performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And I don't want to go way down on the mark of the beast. Uh, people look at that in different ways. Um, I've seen a lot of pretty um, strange suggestions on that. Uh, when social security numbers first came out, well, that's the mark of the beast. You're taking it and because you have to have that to get jobs and function and all that. Um, it's, it's just like if you go back once again, go back to Ezekiel, go back to Old Testament, and it has this image where he goes through and he marks the redeemed people, um, the good people. This is the idea of the difference. It's just that, that Satan has marked those who are his, and the idea is that we're try, they try to force everyone into taking those kinds of marks. And people speculate on all kinds of what that's going to look like and how that plays out. They were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And so I would say that is hell. That is the final place of being thrown away from, from God and what is good and what is right. So kind of a heavy passage, but step back from the heaviness and notice 
the victory of it. Notice the authority of Jesus. Notice who's in charge. Notice who's winning. Notice how this goes. And if you're part of the original audience reading this particular book, you are. this is written by John, who was in exile because the church was being persecuted. And so this was incredibly comforting to them. Incredibly comforting to hear that, hey, the might of Rome is against us, but we serve a king, and he's coming back, and he's going to win. Jesus is the highest ultimate king. This allows us, no matter what we face, no matter what happens in your personal life, whatever happens in this nation, whatever happens around the world, we can live with a faith-based posture rather than a fear-based posture. So, first of all, he is the highest king, if you're an outline person. Second, he is the righteous king. Um, I like to quote from Rice Brooks. He says this, If we desire to not be engulfed by a tsunami of digital absurdity, we must find the solid foundation of something that is true and trustworthy. I don't know about you, but I am tired of reading this article says this, this article says the opposite of it, and just back and forth, back and forth. You pick a subject, and I can find it, particularly in the age of COVID, the season of COVID. A righteous king, a righteous king, a king who tells us the truth, a king that we can count on, a king that we don't have to second guess. That is incredible. Revelation 19, verse 11 and 14, I saw heaven standing open before me. It was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. You have to find a place. You have to find what you're going to stand on in this life. And I invite you and encourage you to stand on the truth and the life and the principles of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of him. And... With justice he judges and wages wars. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. So notice that he is righteous, and in our association with him, we become righteous. We wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, we all know each other well enough to know that we're not perfect, but we get to positionally wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So he is faithful. He can be counted on. And I love this because here's a king you can count on. If you look at our political leaders, if you look at religious leaders, if you look at sports leaders, if you look at military leaders, and you watch somebody long enough, at least with most people, you'll be disappointed eventually, right? Maybe not totally. There's an old definition of leadership. I I think it's kind of amusing that leadership is disappointing people slow enough that they stick with you. I thought that was interesting. I thought it was realistic because we're all flawed and we all do things that we shouldn't. Jesus Christ is the righteous king. The righteous king. You're never concerned that he's going to tweet something kind of goofy. You're never concerned about that. He's the righteous king. We can follow him wholeheartedly and completely. And so 
we, we're never concerned that there's going to be a scandal in his background. You know, I feel bad for these guys who run for president or senator or any of these offices because they just, the mud goes back and forth. And so he's a righteous king. And I think we get that. And I find that comforting. I know when I was in college and wrestling with what I was going to do with my faith, um, I dug into Muhammad and found some really disappointing stuff and thought, wow, don't want to follow him. To Siddhartha dug into him, the Buddha, and disappointing. And uh, I remember my conclusion was when I looked at these big religious leaders and I compared them to the life of Jesus Christ, uh, my summary statement is they were just like spiritual pygmies compared to him. He towered above them, towered above them in his integrity. That's who I want to follow. Notice in our passages here, um, the the Revelation passage, that he's an angry king. So if you're an outline person, he's an angry king. Now, immediately, if I start to talk about the wrath of God, the anger of God, some people get nervous. Some people start to cringe. Why can't we just talk about the love of God? And I want you to get this, because this matters and it's important. The wrath of God is not the opposite of the love of God. The wrath of God comes out of the love of God. Let me explain this. It's an extension of his love. When you love someone deeply and they are wronged, like let's say you're a man sitting here and you're married or you have a daughter, um, you're married and have a daughter, that kind of thing. If, If your wife or daughter were sexually assaulted, that love for them would drive you to anger, would it not, right? And so we have a king who sees all the evil of the world, all the sinfulness of the world, and what it does, how we do it to each other, and how we do it to ourselves. One of the saddest things, and some of you have experienced this, some of you have watched it in your own life, others have watched it with a a loved one, Maybe they're wrapped up in addiction. Maybe they're wrapped up in some particular sin. And you watch them destroy their life, decision after decision. And out of your love for them comes your anger at this addiction. Your anger at these choices. Author Tim Keller says this, Your conception of God's love and of your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. My time at the care line where I worked this crisis line for three and a half years gave me this tiny little glimpse of the depravity of man. Just a little glimpse. Every night we would get calls from all over the state of Alaska. And there were times I heard women being beaten while I was on the phone and trying to get police there. Um, I would hear heartbreaking story of abuse after heartbreaking story of abuse, one thing after another. And I just was like, man, this is just Alaska. And this is just the people who call. Can you imagine what it's like for God who sees it all in full color? And there's even scripture that talks about he's angry every day against the wicked. Can you imagine seeing it all? His love brings forth his wrath. There's a story I love in the Old Testament, many people do. It's of Hosea and Gomer. It's a love story, even a popular novel written about it. And 
it was to illustrate God's love with his people, his relentless, never-give-up kind of love. And that's kind of the main point. And you see this, where Hosea's told to marry this woman, Gomer, uh, which I think that's rough, but um, he's, he's to marry her. But on top of that, she's a prostitute, or that's what she had been. And so that's rough. That's pretty difficult. And apparently she was drawn to that lifestyle, drawn to men, addicted to, to men's affections. And she would run off and leave this prophet. Here he offered her love and stability and a new life. And she would just leave and go do whatever. And he would go after her. And it's this powerful story, if you go read it in the Old Testament, of God's remarkable love. But don't think the anger of God is not there. Don't think that there's, there's no anger there because there is anger there. As a matter of fact, it comes out in a kind of an odd way, and you can go look at this. I'm not going to give you the names. They're hard to say, and I would probably botch them a little bit. But his, he's told to name his children these prophetic names about how God is dealing with how wicked his people are living, the Israelites at the time. He names one child, um, God will sow, and the idea is judgment, God will sow judgment. So I'm sure the kid is like, thanks dad. The next kid, the name means no mercy. And the final child, the name means not my people and so you see with God, even though this book that talks about the relentless, surprising love of God, you see this undercurrent of his wrath at the sinfulness of his people, the sinfulness of humanity. And so Jesus returning, he is an angry king. We need to understand that. We need to get that because God, as one theologian says, Leonard Sweet, he said, God is not an accomplice in our idolatry and our rebellion. His grace is not licensed to just live however we want. Sin is a serious problem, and the Bible is clear that all of us have alienated a holy God and been hostile to him that we are slaves and dominated by forces of evil when we walk in that way, that we love darkness more than light. One theologian said this, Mark Golly, he said, death is our trajectory because the wages of sin is death. That's the direction we're going. And Jesus, because he loves us, because he cares about us, like a parent of an addicted teenager, is angry at the sin in our lives, angry at what others have done to us and what we are doing to others. Can you imagine God seeing all of it? I come back to that a lot. I was watching a video by Tim Ballard who has spent the last 12 years fighting the trafficking of children. He runs an organization called Operation Underground Railroad. He says that one in five American children are sexually solicited before they turn 18 years of age. He said a big source of that, just you parents so you have some idea of this, is video games and where they can communicate. And so your kid's playing Fortnite, whatever, and this person's pretending to be another 10-year-old boy and he begins to groom your son. Tim Ballard says, um, internationally, every 30 seconds, a child is taken, a child is kidnapped for either slave labor, sex, or organ harvesting. Every 30 seconds internationally. 
Think of the level of evil that that is. And that should make you angry. It certainly makes Jesus angry. And so when he returns, it's kind of like when he says, I have had enough. I've had enough. And someday he will deal with it all completely. Revelation chapter 19, verse 12 and 15, talks about his eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Jump down to 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You know, you'll read about these like school shootings or something that happens, and then the person takes their own life, and you're like, man, they got away with it. I'm telling you they didn't get away with it. They will pay. They will face justice. There is something as holy anger. Jesus, even though the first time he came meek and mild, so to speak, he also, if you look carefully, it looks like at the beginning of his ministry, he cleared out the temple, and at the end of his ministry, he cleared out the temple. In a, in a time of holy anger. We see in the early church the anger of God being used against even his own people when they defy him. Acts chapter 5, go back and read that story, Ananias and Sapphira, and here they are, it's, it's a, um, you know, people are selling property and bringing the money to the church, and this couple decides to sell the property and keep part of the money for themselves, which they could do, but they wanted to be self-righteous. They wanted to make themselves look better than they were. And so they said, we gave this the whole of the price. And they lied to the Holy Spirit and God dropped both of them. They both died. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a passage that nobody puts up on their refrigerator or laminates and puts in their Bible um, as a little reminder. But it talks about people in church who are disrespectfully, who are kind of blaspheming the communion time. And because of that, they got sick and some of them fell asleep or died. And some of you are going, man, I showed up on the wrong Sunday, didn't I? Try to hit the, the whole of God's word as much as we can. And the anger of God is a big theme in Scripture. We don't like to talk about it. It's not super encouraging. We don't like to talk about hell, but it is the final place where God deals with wickedness, a place of separation from all that is good. One theologian said, a night where there is no dawn, a place of fire and punishment. I was surprised in our very secular culture that in a survey I found 9% of Americans believe in hell. That surprised me because so, you know, so many Americans aren't Christian. G.K. Chesterton says this, because hell preserves human freedom, see, we don't have to choose to be with God. We can reject the gospel message. And so we don't have to be with him. We can choose a different destiny. G.K. Chesterton says this, he said, hell is God's greatest compliment to humanity. C.S. Lewis talked about hell, and the idea was that the locks are on the inside, that the person chooses not to accept grace. The person chooses not to follow Jesus Christ. See, I believe that God's last word is love, but some people will not hear it. 
and God will honor them and respect their free will decision. And so we need to see this, need to understand that. And that's a hard doctrine, and people have a hard time with that. Um, some evangelicals think that uh, you're just annihilated after a short period of time, and I, I, don't, I don't see that in Scripture, but some see it. Um, it looks to me like heaven is eternal and hell is eternal. That's the way I understand it. It's the way the majority position of the church for a long, long time. But understand this. Jesus is an angry king. But it's anger at wickedness. It's a good, holy, moral, righteous anger. It's an anger we should have as well. The final idea is this, is that he's a victorious king. He is the greatest warrior king. I like a story from history. You may have heard of him um, because of the popularity of the Robin Hood uh, story or tale. And I don't know about the historicity of Robin Hood. I'm not sure. But the context is, is historical. And the idea of Richard the Lionheart goes off to fight a foreign war. And he was viewed by the people of England as a good king, as a righteous king, as a good man, as someone who promoted justice and could be trusted. And his rotten brother takes over while he's gone, uh, John. And John is all the things Richard was not. He was not a born leader. He was not a brilliant general. Uh, he was a very wicked, grasping individual. And under John's leadership, the people suffered. And the people prayed for Richard the Lionheart to return. And one day he did. And they rang the bells and they sang and they celebrated, Long live the king. And we're in that same kind of context, but with a perfect king but a victorious king. Jesus will return and he will defeat all that is evil, all that is wicked, all that is wrong in the world. And he is above every single authority. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, the fear of God is the death of every other fear. If you have this healthy respect for God, then you don't need to fear anything else because God is for you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God is working for your good. A.W. Tozer once said this. I think it's appropriate for our time. He said, a scared world needs a fearless church. Are we a fearless church? Are we fearless people? Or do we walk in fear and worry? He is a victorious king. You look at this passage, I'm not going to read it all to you again, but Revelation 19, verse 13, 15 through 20, you see victory just stamped across all of this. You see that he's stomping on the winepress of his, of his enemies. You see that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. You see that the beast, and the, the false prophet, that they are captured and defeated. So it doesn't matter who looks like they have all the power, all the momentum. Uh, Jesus will destroy. Jesus will win. Jesus will win because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. And so he is the ultimate king of justice and the ultimate victorious king. Now, this is incredibly comforting even in our day because about one in ten Christians around the world are dealing with pretty serious persecution Estimates run about 200 million of our brothers and sisters in the faith face real persecution. 
And so we need to get this. We need to understand they long for the return of Christ. Because we live in a basically free, basically prosperous society, uh, we, I think, sometimes are not as quick to long for the return of Christ. I mean, it's kind of funny. Even, even I, I'll find myself going, you know, Lord, I want you to come back, but I would like to have grandchildren first. That'd be kind of fun, you know. You know, the New Testament, the main New Testament word that's translated faith in our New Testaments in the Greek, um, it's always difficult from, you know, from Greek to English and to figure that out. Faith is a good definition, a good translation, but you can also translate it allegiance. And I think there's value in that, understanding that the Christian faith, really at the heart of it, is an allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, an allegiance to the forgiving king, the king that offers us salvation, and he's a victorious king over all that is evil and wicked. And we have to be people who have the backbone to stand for him no matter what pressure we might face. Interesting article I just read this week, um, a baseball game, San Francisco Giants versus the Dodgers. At the game, they did this big display, and it was the Black Lives Matter, and all the coaches and all the players uh, took a knee. They all kneeled. Now, um, I think Christians should be opposed to uh, you know, racial injustice or racism, uh, police brutality, and so I, I get that. I get the appeal of that particular movement. I do encourage you, though, uh, to study the actual website of the organization, and I think you'll find some very, very troubling things. So I think it does require some discernment. Of course, the church is against racism, but that organization, you need to be aware there are some real problems with it. It's against the traditional family. It's against those of us that believe there are just two genders. I mean, go read the website. They're pretty open about it. Um, all kinds of things that the average Christian would not be for. So here's this Christian, and everybody kneels, everybody bows, and this is the cause of the moment, right? And this guy, I gotta say, named Sam, and he stood all by himself, and when asked about it, he clarified, he goes, look, I'm, I'm against police brutality, I'm against racism, he said, I can't kneel before anything besides God and Jesus Christ. That took some backbone, didn't it? I'm telling you, we are entering days where you're going to have to get a backbone if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. You're going to have to step up. You're going to have to make decisions. And I don't know when the, you know, what the situations are going to be, but it's going to happen. I think we're headed for those times. We've had it easy for a long, long time. I think you should pray for your children. I think you should pray for your grandchildren if you've got them. We're entering a different era, in my opinion. The central message of the Bible is that Jesus is Lord or King. That he is over all these things. And this King... This King of kings and Lord of lords stands before you and he says simply but profoundly, follow me.
So the big takeaway today I have in the notes is this. And I encourage you to think through, can you really say this? I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Let's pray. Dear God, we come to you today. We are grateful that there is authority in life, whether it's police officers, teachers in a classroom, bosses at work, political leaders, governors, presidents, Supreme Courts. Lord, we thank you for those who accept those kinds of responsibility. And Lord, some of us are called to those spots. Help us to walk that out well. But Lord, we acknowledge that the ultimate authority is you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And you deserve and demand our ultimate allegiance. Let me just close with the last prayer of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.